Good morning. Good to be together. As uh, Greg alluded to, we're going to be in the book of Colossians, a small letter in the New Testament. So I'd ask that you take your Bibles out and turn with me to that book, that letter. Um, I'm going to need you to have your eyes on it uh, as we spend time in it. If you have a pew Bible, the one, one of the ones in the seats, <clears throat> it's page 925. Um, and so, again, I just want to keep reiterating, I'm grateful for you guys to keep following along with me in Colossians. We've been looking at it throughout the whole year, <clears throat> anytime I, I have the opportunity to teach. Um, and we, we come to chapter 3 right now, and so because it's been a, a month or so since, I'll give a quick recap. I'm trying not to, every time I, I feel like the recap gets longer and longer, uh, or just teaching the whole book every time. Um, so I'm trying not to do that. I do encourage you if if something uh, grabs your attention today from the book, that you go back and listen to those studies or, or do some studying on your own. Um, but let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, once again, um, we're grateful for this uh, weekly rhythm that you've put us into to uh, draw our attention uh, collectively as your body um, to the person and work of the triune God. Uh, it's, it's where our hearts are settled. It's, um, it's the foundation to live upon that is uh, firm. And so, Lord, collectively with the rest of the body throughout the world, we thank you um, that you revealed yourself to us and you've given us now your word to uh, understand your who you are, your nature, your will, your plan for us. And so we need your spirit to reveal these things to us because they're higher than um, anything that we're capable of. And so we invite you, your, your spirit, to um, do a supernatural work in us collectively, drawing our affections towards you, um, making our the old man debtor and the new man more alive. And we need your help in that. So we ask in your son's name, amen. amen. So hopefully you've made it there in, in the book of, in the letter of Colossians. Again, we're going to be picking up in chapter three, but I just hope to remind you that the primary thing Paul is trying to get across to these, these believers in Colossae is the preeminence of Christ, okay? That Christ is above everything else. He is um, first and foremost. And so that is his main uh, aim as he writes this letter. And so I want to make sure you, that's the underpinning for all else that he says, that they would know that Christ is above all else. Um, he started off in chapter one really thankful for the believers because he had heard really good things about uh, their growth in the, in, in the Lord as a young church. He, uh, also in chapter 1, he prays, he shares his prayer to them, what he's hoping for, that there be even more growth uh, in their lives. And then he begins to get into that aim 
on why Christ is preeminent above all else. He talks about Christ being the head of creation, that he was the one that created. So he's above creation. He created it. That Christ is above the church, that he's the head of it, and the, Christ, the body of Christ is the body. Um, the church is the body. So he's above it. And he's even above life and death itself. And so he starts to kind of lay his argument for why Christ is preeminent above everything else. Chapter 2, he goes on to kind of share how he's suffering for the believers there, and he's rejoicing in that suffering. It's not just he's just taking it on the chin, but he's actually rejoicing in it because the message came from the preeminent one. What he's hoping to share with them is worthy to be suffered for. Okay, it came from that one that's above everyone else, above everything else. And so he's glad to suffer for that message. It's worthy to strive on behalf of that message. You remember, uh, he's likely in prison as he writes this for that message. And so that is the type of suffering that he's going through. Also, in at the end of chapter 2, he starts to talk about warnings. Okay, and we talked uh, at length about this maybe last time or the time before, where he's um, like super spiritual, okay, secretive spiritual, elitism, okay? And he starts warning against these, this kind of teaching and these kind of teachers because it tampers with that message that is from the preeminent one that Paul is suffering for. It tampers with that message, and so he wants to warn them because it's a legitimate concern. Paul knows the principle that belief equals behavior. What you believe comes out in how you live. And Paul knows that, and so he knows if they start, they start to believe these lies, they'll actually start to behave differently, behave in a way that's anti-gospel. All right, and so it's a legitimate concern. Paul makes it clear here and elsewhere that the battleground for the mind is very crucial, very crucial. The battleground for orthodoxy or right thinking, right doctrine, is so crucial to Paul. And he wants to make that clear to them. But today, as he, as he kind of leaves chapter 2, again, these, these weren't, there wasn't chapters when this was originally written. He didn't write a letter and put chapters and verses in it. He wrote a letter, and we kind of split it up to make sense of it. All right? And so, not we, not me. Other people, smarter people. Um, and so... Although there is a there is a, a, a chapter break here, it does there it's a sustained note from chapter two. Okay, it carries over from chapter two, and we're gonna try to make that evident here. But most people do look at the, the Colossian in the four chapters as split into two. One, the first two chapters are about got doctrine, the Christ being preeminent above all else. And so that's the doctrine that Paul sets forth, and then the Last two chapters are the practical. How do you live in light of that? And Paul starts to share that. Again, there's a sustained note, and we'll, we'll follow that. But that order is important, that it's doctrine, then living. Doctrine, then living. Right, li right doctrine, then right type of living. That's an important order. But this is where the rubber meets the road as we get into chapter 3, how to live it out. And so he's going to start in the beginning of chapter 3, talking generally, uh, general principles of application 
um, general practical things. That's what we're going to look at today. And then next time we're together talking about Colossians, you're going to see at the end of chapter 3, he's going to go into more specific application. If you're a wife, a husband, a child, you know, or an employee or employer, how do you specifically apply the gospel? And he'll talk about that. All right, so Paul has given the Colossians Christ in the first part, and then the lies, and now he's going to answer the question, how do you live in light of these things? And the answer is very anti-Gnostic. Okay, the Gnostics, it was very elitist, very secretive. You had to kind of uh, be on the ends to understand what God is doing in this world, the spiritual nature of things. And the answer that Paul gives is very anti that. It's very simple. Instead of a super secret and subjective myth, Paul wants them to know that the, it's very simple, the objective truth of their position in Christ, that they're hidden in Christ. And if they have that, they'll have the answer to the lies. So let's read, I'm going to back up a little bit in chapter 2, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 7 of chapter 3. Starting in verse 20, it says, If Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears to you, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. And so you see, hopefully you saw a lot of language about life and death. Life and death. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. If then, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised to, you know, implying to new life with Christ. In verse 3, for you have died. Verse 4, when, for when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will. Verse 5, put to death, therefore. You see the language there that's being used. Paul is wanting them to know and give them the strength that he prayed for them in chapter 1. Chapter 1, he prayed that they would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And how are they strengthened? Paul's fulfilling that prayer even now by saying, you're strengthened to know that you died with Christ and now you've been raised to new life with Christ and that will strengthen you. Now, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, if then. It sounds like a description of doubt, like, a, like to induce doubt. If maybe this has taken place, but that's not how it's written 
in the Greek. In the Greek, it's, let's get fancy here, particle of fulfilled condition. You all know what that is, right? Um, Essentially, it just means that a better way to translate it is in view of the fact that you have died, therefore, or since you have died, since this is actually true, therefore, live this way, okay? So it's not to induce doubt. It's since this has happened, X, Y, and Z, okay? So it's not, that's the same with verse 20 of chapter 2, if with Christ you have died. Since with Christ you have died is a better translation. So what's he say about death? He says, since, verse 20, you've died to the old man, do not try to control your body with earthly ways, man-made ways, like beating yourself or, or, uh, or uh, starving yourself to death. That doesn't work. That doesn't stop the indulgence of the flesh. So stop it. You're dead to that. Since you have died, you're hidden with Christ. Since you have died, put to death, kill those things that he gives a list of that are earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is a really, this verse 5 is really strong language. It reminds us of um, what's said in Romans chapter 8. Can you put up Romans chapter 8, verse 13, Paul? In Romans chapter 8, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So throughout, throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, there is this, there is this um like this logical explanation that he's making for how to live in as a as a new creation and he's making the case that you first reckon the truth of your dead old man and so you believe that the power and the penalty and the in bond in being enslaved to that old man and all the sin that comes with him that is made you an enemy with Christ, that that person is dead. Dead like we know dead. We all know dead. We've, most of us have seen someone that's dead, and there's no life there. There's no, there's no will there. There's no energy there. And we have to, the first thing that Paul wants the people to do is believe that is true spiritually, that that old man is dead as you guys know dead. But then he also makes the case that even though that's true spiritually, somehow he still rears his head. And you got to keep starving him, keep killing him, keep killing the deeds of him and the body that he has. And so there's this kind of dual thing that um, Paul is going to. And, he sa- and he, so he's making the case, reckon it true, reckon it as true, but then do something about it as well by starving him, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. So, since you have died with Christ, that's an objective reality. Even though it's spiritual, it's an objective reality. Live like it. So the people here that know, that, are, that have given their life over to Christ, 
The person you were before you came to Christ and were born again is dead. Live like it. Live like he or she is dead. You're free from that bondage, and you're free to have the power to starve those desires of that old man or old woman. So he goes through that list of sexual, sexual sins. I think he's, he'll, he'll go into another list in a, in a minute, but this first list is, is things of the heart, okay? Idolatry of the heart expressed in a sexual way or a jealous way as we look at covetousness, but these are things of the heart. And you, it reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the heart. The, the Lord primarily cares about your heart because he knows if your heart gets changed, everything else gets changed. Everything else about your life gets changed. And so he makes that case by starting with things of the heart, things that God is, the wrath of God is coming even now. The wrath of God is coming for these kinds of deeds. And so he makes, like he says in Ephesians, that's how you used to walk. I want you to remember that's how you used to walk. And remember that that's, not, that's no longer who you are. But, again, this is, uh, this, Paul loves this type of language. He says in Romans 6, can you put that Romans 6 passage? So starting in verse 5 in Romans 6, he says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, again, union with Christ, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Keep going. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, could, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. See, he, Paul uses this language a lot as he, as he tries to strengthen believers that the death is real, and because the death is real, the life is real as well. Because you guys ever heard the saying, nature hates a vacuum? You guys heard that saying? So the, con the idea of that, it's true in my, my house. If there's an empty space, we will fill it with something. Uh, it's true around this church. If, if, if we have empty space, we will put some kind of furniture there and then a coat on top of that. So the, that's the concept that nat nature hates a vacuum, that as there's empty space, that it creates a vacuum and things get sucked into it. And this is the legalistic mentality, just thinking about don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. But that is not complete worship. Paul knows that it's not just about the death to the old man, but that after your death in Christ, that there is actually, you were resurrected to new life, born again. And where are you positioned? You're hidden with God. The book of the letter that he wrote to Ephesians says that even spiritually we are placed in the heavenly places with him as he sits at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father. And that's where we are positionally. Even though we don't see it, that is our true reality spiritually. 
And so it's not just about the don'ts and the deaths. It's about what is he, uh, what is he bringing you towards? What, he says to seek the things that are above. That's an active word, an active command, to set your mind on the things that are above. Since you have been resurrected with Christ, live like it. That is true. That is your true reality, so live like it. And those two commands, seek and set your mind, are both have urgency to them. Both have urgency to them. Seek is like finding or discovering. Like, go find it. You think about the parables that we, fa- we find in the Gospels of uh, this treasure being in the field and selling everything you have to go buy that field so that you can have that treasure there. Or the woman that lost the coin. These are, these, this is the, the heart posture that Christ wants us to have towards his kingdom. A, a posture of seeking. Understanding that we don't have all of it and that we can pursue it and he wants us to pursue it. So that is the first command, to seek. And then he also says to set your mind on the things of above. The idea of kind of cement it into place, okay? It's not just that you understand it or know it, but it becomes part of who you are. The things of above become part of who you are. And I think by saying seek and set your mind on these things, there's an implication that he's making. And the implication is one of two things that he, that he has in mind as he looks at those Colossian believers. One is, We're prone to aimless living. Aimless living. We're not seeking anything. We're not setting our minds on anything. We're just kind of taking the algorithm and letting it just show us what to care about. We're just aimless. That's one part, one implication that I I think he's trying to address. And the other is maybe your life is characterized by laser focus, but it's on something earthly something that doesn't matter for the eternal. And so he's, he's saying that both the intensity matters, the urgency, not aimless, not, 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 lo, not a loafing, both the intensity and the direction together matter. What you seek and how you seek it collectively. So these are some questions that I kind of thought of. I'm asking myself them too in this season of life, but is your walk with Christ only one-sided? What I mean by that is, are you only trying to avoid the bad? The list of don'ts? There is no, I think Paul would say, there is no power in that. There is no power in that way of living. That complete worship is a pursuit of the things above the heavenly things, the things of Christ, the things of salvation, the things of the gospel, that true biblical worship is an avoidance of the the old man and his nature and his deeds, but so much more than that, and the power lies in the actual pursuit of the heavenly things, the things of his goodness, his beauty, and his kingdom. So is your walk only one-sided? Is your life aimless in this season what does 
What in your life does have that very valuable commodity of your attention? What has that? What, what owns that in your life? That's a very valuable commodity that I don't think we give enough weight to, our attention. What has that? It, something has it. We all know we were created to worship. Everyone's a worshiper, whether you believe it or not. Whether you're walking with Christ or not, something has that. Are we just aimless with that attention, or do we actually make it work? And then the last question of self-reflection is, do you have a life of intense pursuit, but God is opening your eyes that it's on something earthly? It's on something earthly. There's an earthly nature to that pursuit that's going to lead you away from him. Not all, when he, sings, when he says things of the earth, I don't think he has in mind all earthly things are bad. I think he has in mind that there's things of lesser value and greater value. And if we pursue the lesser things as ultimate things, we end up in the wrong place. And so these are just some questions that... Uh, I th- that got me thinking as I've been studying this. And so I hope that you can meditate on them as well. But let's continue on. How are the believers? The believers are supposed to seek and to set their mind on the things of above, the heavenly things. So how are they supposed to do that? I think he's going to spend the rest of our, our passage today talking about how they're supposed to do that. And I put it three ways. These are things to help me remember them. One, daily. They're supposed to pursue these things daily. Two, they're supposed to pursue these things communally. And three, they're supposed to do it thankfully. Daily, communally, and thankfully. So let's read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 8. He continues, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. But put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, you, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Amen. 
So, he's talked about death and life. Death in Christ, life in Christ. And he's kind of set that contrast. And now you guys hopefully saw the, con- the, the contrast that matches that. The putting off and the putting on. That we're supposed to put off these things. The old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed. What are the, what are the practices of the old self? Well, these, for one, it's these social sins of anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. And what are the new things? What are the, the things to put on? The contrast against compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's, it's the language of clothing. Um, you guys seen Christmas Story, right? He has all the things, and he's like walking around. He can't move. Like, the light, a, a new life with Christ isn't trying to just put good things on top of the bad things. That I have like this, this old life, this sinful life, and it's still there, and, I, and it's, I, I know it's alive, but I'm just going to try and do as much good things and put those things on top of that old life. That's not, what, that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is if Christ died, you died. And with that, you, you took off those robes that are stained, those dirty robes, those things that would make you unclean. It's, there's a, those, those things are removed completely from your body, and instead, you're given new robes, robes of salvation and righteousness. That is what he's talking about. That is the type of language. And so I think about getting dressed as a daily thing you do, right? Imagine if every time you got undressed and then redressed, that you had a moment where you thought about this truth. Every single day, as you uh, got ready for the day, you thought about the glorious truth that God has removed your stained uncleanliness uh, 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 sin before him. He has removed it as you remove your clothes. And he has then given you new clothes that allow you to come into his presence and be seen as a, his son. And imagine what that would do to set your affections on him as the day begins. That, that pursuing these things, seeking and setting your mind is a daily thing that we must do because I know you are just like me and the day pulls those thoughts away from you. The ways, the cares of the world choke those thoughts away. Choke them. They take the life of those thoughts away. And we need to do, we need to pursue these things on a daily basis. So we can't live on yesterday's manna. Adam and Eve had that experience. They tried to clothe themselves, Right? They, they were in sin and they tried to clothe themselves and it wasn't, that wasn't what God had intended. He asked them to remove that kind of clothing and so he could give them the clothing that would cover them. It's a, the, the clothing imagery is throughout the, throughout the scripture. Other ways that I want you guys to be thinking about daily pursuit, daily seeking, daily setting your minds on this is so obvious, but it's worth saying 
spending time with God in prayer and in his word. That is how he has revealed himself. He has made his, his access to his throne available to us. And so daily spending time with him. And then all the way down in verse 17, I think there's another part of it that talks about the daily nature of it, where it says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. Everything. There is no hidden closets for the believer in Christ. There is no like separation of this is what's sacred and this is what's secular. Everything is in his kingdom. Everything about your life is in his kingdom. And so daily, putting off and putting on, pursuing, seeking, and setting your minds on those things. How about communally? How does, it, how does Paul say that this is to be done communally? Well, both lists, both the lists of bad things, obscene talk, those types of things, and the list of good things, like compassion of hearts, both lists end with a command that is towards one another. Do not lie to one another. And then he says to forgive one another. And so the, the playing out of this seeking and setting your minds on the things above is to happen in community. That's, he's, it's, it's, it's what he is, that's the only way it can take place because it's a horizontal outworking. It happens outward in the people that we're with. It's proved in our relationships. How else is it communally? Well, look at verse 11. He's talking about how that we are sanctified in that new self and being renewed in knowledge after his image. And then he says here, this place of sanctification here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. See, an outworking of that pursuit is unity within the body, without distinction. Now, there is a bunch of differences in this room if you look around. And we're not supposed to turn a blind eye to those distinctions, but he's saying at the, very, at the foot of the cross, it is level ground. It is level ground. And so as you seek to be uh, continually made new in Christ on a day-to-day -day basis, that will work itself out in your ability to be unified with your brothers and sisters. If we look at verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed you are called into what? One body, communal, community. It is supposed to work itself out towards being unified into one body. And then this is the biggest one to me. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We often think that our time in the word or our time in prayer is for us. And it is, at, at, a, at a certain level it is. We are supposed to come personally before the Lord and be refreshed by him on a daily basis. 
but you see there's a purpose to it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you then can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Using that wisdom that you have gained, you can then give it freely to one another. That is not, Paul is not talking to all the preachers right now. He's talking to the body of believers that us would be daily dwelling in the dwelling with the word, letting it dwell in us, make its home in us, so that when opportunity arises, we're readily, we have that readily available to our brother and sister to refresh them. This is supposed to be done communally. One thing about this, these hymns and spiritual songs and psalms is not everyone had this in Paul's day. It wasn't just like, hey, pull out your Bible, let's go over this together. It was like there was like one in the town, maybe. And so a way that they could remember truths of God was to remember songs that had been created for God. And so they remember these uh, and there's examples of them throughout the scripture, but they'd remember these, they'd, they'd memorize these, and then maybe without having actual God's word, they could remember things about him that are true that they could share with one another. And so, but that's not a, we should memorize this. We have this available now. We have like 12 of them in our house. And so we should take this in along with those psalms and those hymns and those spiritual songs so that we're readily able to minister to our brothers and sisters. This is just another example of the importance of small group ministry, sharing life with each other. Does that group of believers that you run life with, that you share life with, have this vernacular of admonishing one another with God's word? Or is it just something that happens on Sunday? Develop that in those groups. Develop that in your small group or your group of friends. And then lastly, as we finish today, this pursuit is to be done thankfully. And this is good timing with thanksgiving. Look, verse 15. Very simple. Paul says, and be thankful. Verse 16. How are you supposed to do all that ministry with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, whatever you do, it doesn't matter what you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything giving thanks to God the Father through him. It is clear that he's making the case that thankfulness is a mark of the person that's been born again. Paul, you know, in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it takes this idea of thankfulness even a step further. We often think about thankfulness as like a response to something. That it's just like, it's just what I give in response to something, to something being done for me. And it is that. But Paul makes it almost the purpose of his ministry that to develop thanksgiving in, his, in the believers. In verse, uh, in chapter, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this at the end of uh, verse 15. It says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people as the gospel goes forth, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
Paul's purpose in sharing the gospel was that people would become thankful to God, which is glorifying to God, which perpetuates the gospel. It, is, it was one of the primary purposes of Paul's ministry. And again, it should be marked by the person that is seeking the things from above and setting their minds on the things of above. Thankfulness should be part of that. It's a, it's a prime, thankfulness is a primary door for the people of God to experience further grace. And so as we close, I just want to hopefully summarize these things. You know, the, 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 th the picture that kept coming to mind as I was studying this was focus and follow through. Paul gives a focus. I want you to focus on these things. And because you're focusing on these things, I want you to follow through on them with actual living. It's like how you teach uh, a child how to like hit a baseball. Keep your eye on the ball, right? I don't know how many times I've said that in my life. You weren't watching the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Stare daggers at the ball. Paul's saying stare daggers at your... At, you have a position in Christ. Hidden in Christ. Death, risen, ascended in the heavenly places with Christ. Focus on that. And then follow through based on that. Don't just, don't just see the ball and slap the ball. Follow through all the way through. And he wants them to live like that. Focus and follow through. So to summarize, the Apostle Paul was dealing with some serious threats to the body of Christ and the mission that the, the body of Christ has been given. Serious threats that could derail that mission. And he told them, I'm praying that you'll be strengthened with all might. And, that, and then he starts to strengthen them himself. He, he starts to answer that prayer himself by saying, do not be drawn to empty philosophy. Do not be drawn to legalism. Do not be drawn to living in carnality. Don't be drawn to these things. Instead, remember the reality of what has happened spiritually to you. Focus on what has happened spiritually to you. You died with Christ. The old in which you loved, in which you lived, to find another way to live. Sorry. I messed that up completely. <laughs> the old way in which you loved to live is no comparison, no comparison to being obedient to Christ. In fact, that old man has died, dead as dead. But it's not just about that old man's death, it's about the new life that you have as you've been risen with Christ and given new life by faith. So live like it. Take off those tattered clothes of sin and shame and put on daily every piece of garment that matches the robes of righteousness that you've been given in Christ. Then, after you've done that, offer that same blessing to your brothers and sisters. Go to sleep, wake up, and do it all again.
and let getting dressed on a daily basis remind you of the glories and the wonderful provisions that you have in Christ. Focus and follow through. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, we're thankful um, that this is the this is our reality. Now, Lord, we are asking for help because we can't see these positional truths. We can't see ourselves seated with you in the heavenly places. We need faith to see that. And so we now kind of give ourselves humbly to you, asking that you would help us to believe where we don't believe. We ask... um, for a trust that you see more clearly than we do and to, and to lay ourselves onto uh, your word as authoritative that, that speaks the truth of who we actually are and that that would bear its fruit in our life. Those truths would set us on, our, on the foundation, on the rock, and we would be able to Uh, live joyously, abundantly, and firmly fixed on these things, bearing fruit for the gospel's sake. So help us, Lord, we pray. It's in your son's name. Amen.